The reading is, this evening is from Exodus chapter 1, which is, can be found on page 58 of the Church Bibles. So it's Exodus chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in number, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Python and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are dealing with the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stall, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile but let every girl live. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much, Margaret. Uh, Do keep that uh, passage open. Uh, It's good to be uh, starting a a new series uh, this evening uh, in the book of Exodus. I'm excited to be kicking that off. Um, uh, A series called The God of Freedom and Renewal. Uh, and this evening, I think we're just going to really dip our toes into the start of this story. And I hope we'll just, as we touch just on a few sort of big themes, uh, these themes will continue to reverberate, I trust, through our series 
in this wonderful book. Uh, but before we dive in, I, I guess even as we had that reading, you might be thinking to yourself, why on earth are we delving into uh, a book like this? Uh, happened, what, 3,000 years ago plus? Probably over 2,000 miles away. Um, and even as first verses, tricky names, we might be thinking, what is this all about? Why bother? But let me just encourage you, there's a couple of reasons for uh, persisting and staying the course. Uh, first, this is an incredibly exciting uh, story. Arguably, I'd say the greatest uh, and most dramatic story in the entire Old Testament. Uh, memorably featured, of course, in film, uh, if you've seen The Prince of Egypt, uh, or other films involving people like Charlton Heston, if you're a little bit older. Uh, no wonder sort of Hollywood and Disney are keen to use this story, to plunder it, to, to captivate and to entertain us. But my prayer is that we won't simply be entertained over the next few Sunday evenings. Uh, we will be enlightened as we encounter the one behind this story as he reveals himself through these extraordinary events that take place. And actually, if he's not the hero of the book, as we work our way through it, that we've not understood this story. And I pray, too, that as we look at this story, uh, as we are pointed to the one who is that hero, uh, we will find him precious to us. And indeed, we will find in this story our own story, as Jesus is the one who ultimately fulfills these wonderful stories and truths for us uh, in the gospel. But before we dig in, let's, uh, let me pray uh, for us uh, this evening. Fathers, we behold you in the pages of your word. In this amazing story, please may it lead us to, to worship and to your praise. Now, use this story to, to humble us, uh, to strengthen us, to encourage us as we see you more clearly and as we trust you and trust your good purposes for us and for your world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you've ever started watching a film but missed the first few minutes. It's quite frustrating, isn't it? Or you've read a book and you discover it's the second in the trilogy. Um, well, Exodus is the second of five books called the Pentateuch. And it's not obvious from our, from our chapter, but, uh, uh, but if, uh, in the original translation, the first word of the book of Exodus is the word and. The word and. And it's the author's way of reminding us that what happened in the first book of this series, Genesis, uh, is now being continued in the second volume. So briefly, what is the story so far? What's happened in Genesis that we need to know and understand to understand this book of Exodus? Well, Genesis, you know, begins, doesn't it, at the beginning with God creating the world, an incredible world, a world of beauty, um, a world of order, a world of abundant life. And the story reaches its climax as God creates uh, human beings, those made in his image, made to reflect him and to serve him and to enjoy him as they lived with him in his presence, to enjoy his blessing and his favour. And remember the, the glorious mandate that God gives them right there back in Genesis chapter 1. God blessed them, the people, and he said uh, to them, be fruitful and multiply, increase in number, uh, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the world so that my blessings might be known and enjoyed and spread 
all over the earth. But right at the start, uh, humanity uh, turns its back, doesn't it? Oh, Mr. Snape there. It turns its back uh, on God. Uh, we decided that we could run things better uh, without God. Uh, we, we imagined that real blessing would come if we could sort of push God away uh, out of the picture, even though it was his world. And by declaring independence from God, we discovered actually, rather than being the route to freedom and blessing, it became the route to slavery and curse. Everything spoiled, ruined, broken, uh, lost. Generally, we thought that, no, escaping God's clutches, if we could, would bring us freedom. But it brought us terrible uh, slavery. It meant the loss of, of home, the place where we only are truly ever home in God's presence. And ultimately, it resulted in, in death, not just physical death, but as we turned away from the author of life, uh, it meant spiritual death too. And that, of course, is where God could have left us, uh, how the story could have ended. But the God of the Bible is a God of astonishing love and grace. Despite the way we treated him, uh, he continues to, to love us. He pursues us and longs for that relationship that we've wrecked by turning away uh, from him. And that's why in just a few pages on from that catastrophic moment, we find God making amazing promises uh, to people, unconditional promises to a man uh, called Abraham. Uh, he calls this one man, uh, it's all there in Genesis chapter 12, if you want to read it, and he promises good news. He promises the gospel. That's what good news is. He promises the gospel to him. And as we hear those promises, it, it, it's a bit like hearing a glorious melody in an overture that will become stronger and, and more wonderful as that story develops and focuses increasingly on the coming of Jesus. And what were the promises that uh, God made to Abraham? Well, they're there uh, in, say, chapter 12, uh, 15 and 17 of Genesis, if you want to read them. But in essence, uh, God tells Abraham that he will make his descendants into a great people, a great nation. Uh, he also promises his descendants a land in which they will live and call home. And then third, he promises to, to bless them. Uh, and to make them a means by which God will be uh, a, a blessing to the world. People, lands, and blessing. And the story of Genesis uh, continues as God just begins to uh, fulfill those promises. It's very early days. And now as we get to Exodus, we get a little bit of an update, uh, a sort of progress report as to how God is doing in fulfilling those promises to Abraham. And I've got three points, and that leads us to our first point. God makes and keeps his promises, so trust him. God makes and keeps uh, his promises. Let me read from verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70. In all, Joseph was already in Egypt. Well, the opening verses, uh, sorry, the opening verses of, of this book are, I think, eye-opening. Astonishing reminder that God keeps his promises. 
Just think for a moment, let's go back to Genesis. God had promised descendants, hadn't he, for this man Abraham, uh, that he would be a father, not just of a child, but of, of a nation ultimately. And of course, if you know the story, the undeniable truth is that God was promising something that was humanly uh, speaking unlikely. No. Slightly impossible. No, totally impossible. It was impossible. God was old. Uh, Abraham was old. His wife, too. Uh, they'd been childless, unable to have children. And now they're decades beyond having a family. Remarkable. But God had promised. Uh, and it was laughable, really. In fact, uh, Sarah, Abraham's wife, had laughed as those promises were echoed by God in chapter 18 of Genesis. But God responds and challenges uh, her assumptions. He says... Is anything too hard or impossible for God? Within a year, you will have a son. And it happened exactly as God had said. Uh, Abraham, uh, 100, uh, Sarah, 90. Just imagine. But what is impossible becomes reality, just as God had, had declared. And, and that child, miraculously born, is called Isaac, uh, which means Laughter. But now the laughter is not the laughter of, of cynicism. <laughs> it's the laughter of joy, as God proves he is faithful to his, his promises. However unlikely, however impossible they may appear to our often faithless eyes. Well, from such unlikely beginnings, God, God's promises are starting to be fulfilled. And that promise of a nation is reaffirmed to, uh, to Isaac, uh, Abraham's son, and then to Jacob, and uh, wonderfully, in the face of uh, problem after problem, uh, not least uh, a long uh, threatening famine, God acts and works. So that by the end of Genesis, there are growing glimpses of God keeping his promise. And we finally got our toes into Exodus, uh, the next chapters that were of this story, when we discover that just after a remarkably short time, uh, a few generations, the land uh, where God's people are living is literally teeming. It's awash with Abraham's descendants. And again, I think there are echoes of Genesis 1 here, uh, that mandate to be fruitful and multiply. Uh, there in verses 6 and 7. Look down at those, at those verses with me. It's not obvious from our translation, but there are no less than seven different ways that uh, or words used to describe this population explosion. Now, Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. See, God is fulfilling his plan uh, for Abraham and indeed for humanity. God is keeping his promise. Okay, so that, that's the people part of the promise. Uh, what about the other parts of that, that three-pronged promise? What about that promise of land? Uh, a lasting home. That seems, doesn't it, still a long way off. These guys are in Egypt, uh, almost a thousand miles from where they should be. If you want to find out how they got there? Just go back into Genesis and you'll find out uh, the story that brought them to Egypt. And as for enjoying God's blessing, well, that seems a million miles away, doesn't it, in this chapter? People find themselves under the curse of an increasing brutal and humiliating slavery. But here's the thing, as we work our way through this book, uh, as we get done, as it were, through this book, we'll see God uh, moving things forwards 
in extraordinary ways, impossible ways, restoring what had been lost as he, he leads his people towards home, uh, as he establishes his rule so that he might once again live with them and bless them. Getting a bit ahead of ourselves here, but uh, do keep coming back over the next few Sundays and find out how that happens remarkably uh, through God's work and power. And friends, here's the thrilling, the thrilling thing. I think uh, we're going to see that as we put our trust in, in Jesus, uh, we too are included in these great promises made to Abraham. Through Jesus, we become spiritually one of Abraham's descendants. We become uh, one of God's beloved people uh, who uh, will inherit a land, not a, a bit of real estate in the, in the ancient Near East or, or the Middle East, but a, a, a renewed creation, a new Eden where we will live joyfully under God's loving rule and enjoy his presence perfectly and forever. And so being able to trust God, being confident that he only, not only makes promises but keeps them, is actually foundational, isn't it, to our faith and to our hopes and our present experience. Just recently, I was talking to an older member of our congregation who's been going through some pretty difficult times. And I'd gone along, rather naively, I think, to, to encourage them. Um, just very conscious that, you know, we live in a broken world and her life was a car crash in so many ways. But I left humbled and encouraged as I, I met a woman trusting in God's promises. Uh, a God who promises never to leave us or forsake us. Uh, a God who promises to forgive us whenever we come to him and whenever we turn back to him. A God who promises to, to walk with us through life, yes, and through death, and to raise us up in eternal life. A promise to be reminded of even this past week and all that's gone on in our nation. Well, my prayer is that as we work our way through this story in the coming weeks, uh, we will see that faithfulness of God increasingly displayed that will give us, I hope, great confidence, great reassurance in God's plan of rescue yeah, and his commitment to, to bringing us home and to bless us as we trust him. But second, right from the start of this book, not only do we see God's promises being faithfully fulfilled, uh, we also see God's plans, I think, being very strongly opposed. Here's the second point. God's plans oppose, expects, opposition. Uh, verse 8 is an anonymous shift, isn't it, uh, in the story. Then a new king, uh, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. And as this new king sees the growth of the Israelites happening sort of right under his nose, uh, he sees a problem, doesn't he? Uh, verse 9. Look, he says to the people, uh, the Israelites, they've become uh, too numerous for us. So we've got to deal shrewdly with them. Or they'll become even more numerous. And if, and if war breaks out, they might join the enemy and then leave the country. Well, this story might describe events thousands of years back, but it has a very sort of contemporary ring, doesn't it? A paranoid dictator, desperate to hang on to power, uh, willing to do anything to keep it. There are, the world is full of those sorts of people uh, leading countries around the world. I think that threat probably was largely imagined. But this uh, king uses this perceived threat as an excuse uh, to persecute uh, the, this minority within his nation. And racism hasn't gone away, has it? 
in our world today. It's still an ugly reality. Here we see, I think you see an example of it uh, as God's people, this uh, Israelite minority, are, are targeted. And perhaps as he makes speeches about this apparent threat uh, to their way of life and security, his advisors are only just too happy to, to, to act. And notice the first thing that Pharaoh does is to bring uh, in this oppressive slavery, press-ganging the Israelites into this forced labor, uh, using them to build probably what I think were vanity projects uh, for Pharaoh's own ego. And very suddenly, God's people, having enjoyed freedom and prosperity, having been welcomed into this nation, now they find themselves slaves. And again, just as the author uses seven words to describe that remarkable multiplication of the people. Now he uses seven different words in the original to describe the, the miserable experience of being slaves in Egypt at the hands of Pharaoh. And whether he knew it or not, as he makes the Israelites public enemy number one, as he enacts that plan, actually he puts himself, doesn't he, on collision course with God himself, with God's purposes and plans. And in one sense, in a very real sense, he becomes a picture, I think, of humanity as it defies its creator, as it waves its fist in its maker's face. And notice as the chapter continues, so Pharaoh's opposition seems to increase um, as God's purposes are continuing to be fulfilled. So oppressive slavery, verse 11, morphs, verse 15, into sort of a largely under-the-radar program to kill all newborn baby boys at birth. Uh, using the Israelites' own midwives as the agents of death. Just imagine that. I was, I was trying to picture that this week, the sheer horror of that situation. Those dedicated to bringing life into the world, now encouraged and even commanded to snuff it out. Life, the Bible says, is a gift, a gift from God, the life giver. And here we find a king hell-bent on destroying life, brazenly opposing God's purposes, acting as if he were God. He said that authority over life was his. Again, I was just, not a lot has changed, has it, in 3,000 years. Some people here might be old enough to remember the Holocaust. Many of us remember the genocide of, of Cambodia, or the Balkans, or Rwanda, or Sudan. And if we think slavery is a thing of the past, um, it's estimated that over 40 million in our world right now are victims of modern forms of slavery, many of them women and girls. And as for the taking of the lives of babies, those most vulnerable, those most needing protection, tragedy that continues, doesn't it, on a scale not even this king could have imagined. Well, again, a pharaoh finds his plans being thwarted. And so what he hoped to do in secret, he decides now to make a sort of national policy and to enlist the help of his people, verse 22. And Pharaoh gave his orders to all his people, every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. Let every girl live. This key moment as God prepares to initiate the next big step in his great plan of salvation we find that plan here resisted opposed people prepared to go to any lengths as it were to wreck God's purposes 
And that is true, isn't it, especially when it comes to God's great purposes of salvation. As the one who is at the centre of those plans, as he comes into the world, finds himself opposed and ultimately murdered. Again, it's not a not Pharaoh, it's Herod, isn't it, at the start of Jesus' life? But of course, as that life reaches its climax, uh, the one who comes as a center stage person in God's plans is handed over and murdered on a Roman cross. So perhaps it shouldn't be that surprising, even this evening, that those who trust him, those who align themselves with God's purposes, find themselves often opposed and rejected. I was reading the latest uh, edition of the Prayer News from Open Doors. It reminds me that Christians by far are the largest group uh, persecuted around the world. God's plans and purposes are opposed, aren't they? And we need to be realistic about that reality. But thirdly, uh, and most importantly, God remains firmly in control, uh, so fear him. Picture God's people now in Egypt, uh, oppressed, uh, enslaved, threatened by the might and power of this man, Pharaoh, head of the greatest superpower on the planet at the time. I guess it must have seemed for them like everything was out of control. Possible to believe that God was still in control. Uh, Maybe as they cried out, it seems like there was silence. No prospect of deliverance on the horizon. God was indifferent to their plight, or maybe uh, uh, no match for the might of Pharaoh. It's interesting isn't it, that God is barely mentioned in these uh, two chapters overtly. But wonderfully, I think we do get this glimpse of a God who is in control, a world that is not out of control. Just look back to verse 12. These are words that are meant to be, I think, eye-opening. The more the Israelites were oppressed by Pharaoh, the more they multiplied, spread. See, God's not on the back foot when it comes to his plans and promises. He's keeping his promises and doing so even in the face of incredible opposition. I guess it might not have seemed like that. If you were on ground level with that worm's eye view, God fulfilling his promises in the midst of extreme suffering, facing opposition and uh, evil on a grand scale. Of course, what is true in this story uh, becomes magnified, doesn't it, in uh, the climax of this story. As Jesus uh, dies on a cross, opposed, hated, and murdered. And yet God is in control, isn't he? He's not thwarted. His plans will not be stopped. And we'll see that more clearly as we go through this story. Well, as we finish, I guess the great application of this is clear. We need, don't we, to fear and trust the Lord. And I think it's wonderful. We get a very tangible glimpse of what that looks like, what it means to do that in the faith and actions of these humble uh, Hebrew midwives. Just look down at verse 15. King of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, 
when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stall, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him, but if, he's a, if it's a girl, let, let her live. The midwives, however, fears God. And they didn't do what the king of Egypt had told them to do, and they let the boys live. Just a small detail, isn't it? But in Bible terms, this is very significant. We're never told, are we, the name of Pharaoh? Just called the king or Pharaoh. But we do learn the names of these two midwives, these seemingly insignificant women who are known and are precious to God and part of God's plan and purposes. And I think it's a wonderful reminder, even timely reminder in this past week, that God is not impressed with the trappings of human power like we often so often are. Now, what delights him is seeing men fearing and women trusting God. Well, I'm sure Pharaoh is livid at the ways in which his plans are resisted and thwarted. I don't know if the Hebrew women were more vigorous than the Egyptians, um, and the midwives never managed to make it on time. But we do find the reason here, don't we, why the women, those midwives, acted in the way they did. They took greater account of God. They feared him. They saw him of greater significance than Pharaoh for all his threats and power. They recognized the power of God as being greater than the power of Pharaoh. So they took their stand boldly, courageously. I love the way in which God graciously honours their standard, their confidence in God, as they're not only named, but given the blessing of of their own families in verse 20. So God was kind to the midwives, and the the people increased and became more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. He blessed them. He blessed them. We're out of time, but do you see, here's a God... At the very start of this book, revealing his plans and his purposes. Revealing himself to us. So let me ask you this evening, uh, will we trust God's promises uh, for us this week? Especially those gospel promises that he has given us, even in this book, who find their fulfillment in Jesus. Uh, Will we remain uh, steadfast and trusting Um, not least when we see those purposes being opposed or ignored, will we trust that he is working for our good, even when opposition seems to be on the ascendancy? And will we hold on to our big God uh, and live boldly and courageously for him? Will we fear him and honour him above all others? I want to have a moment in quiet to respond to this God in our hearts, and then I'll pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this book that we're going to be looking at over these coming weeks. Thank you that it is an eye-opening book, amazing story, but a a story that reveals you to us. 
and your great purposes and plans. Father, as we have a chance over these coming weeks to behold you, what you're doing in the world, and how those plans reach their climax in the Lord Jesus, please encourage us. Please know that we, help us to know that we can trust your promises. Even when things are tough or we find ourselves increasingly opposed and your purposes ignored or resisted. Please help us to see that we do indeed have a, a big God, a God worthy of our honour and our fear, our trust and our obedience. Please encourage us through this story. Thank you that by your grace we become part of this story as we trust Jesus. Please help us to trust him more and to see those purposes more fulfilled in our lives, uh, in this community and in our world. Uh, for the glory of Jesus we pray. Amen.